Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. How's everyone feeling? It's been a hard week. A lot going on. The uh, verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial got announced this week. It was a lot for me. Uh, It was relief that he was found guilty on all counts, but also just tremendous sadness that it took somebody losing their life, George Floyd, to begin this conversation or to keep moving it forward. And hopefully that's where we are. Hopefully this is another step on the path towards more justice and more equality. And, you know, I it's not my experience to comment on, you know, I'm, I'm largely white, part Filipino, but mostly white. I don't have the same experience as, as a black person in America. So I don't want to go too deep into that, but I've been thinking about that for the last couple of days now and just, yeah, feeling, feeling exhausted. My guest is Amelia Pang. She's a journalist. She's an author. She has a great new book out called Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. This was a book that when I first heard about it, I was like, I want to read it, first of all. sounded awesome. But then I said I want to talk to Amelia, too, because it just sounds like such a fascinating story. And what Amelia lays out is not just the working conditions in China in general, but in particular, these prison camps, these labor camps. They've been in the news a little bit lately because of what's happening in Xinjiang province, which is where the Uyghurs are the majority, but they're a minority in the rest of China. And they have been rounded up as this ethnic group and put into these essentially concentration camps to do forced labor. But as Amelia talks about in the book, this is not a new issue. China has been imprisoning political dissidents and other people that they see as threats for a long time and forcing them to work long, long hours, and we're talking 15, 20-hour days, manufacturing goods that get exported. And these products are often hidden when they go through a manufacturer. So if you're a big company and you do an audit and try to figure out, are my manufacturing practices sound? Usually the audit's going to come back positively and say, yeah, things are fine. But the truth is, this is affecting way more brands than you realize. It's a global problem. And it's time that we start taking some action on it. So there's a lot to get into here. This book, Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. As the title implies, it starts with a prisoner that wrote a letter. It got found by an American consumer. And the process of trying to track down where that letter came from helped uncover a lot of things that were happening in China. They're not better. They're getting worse, frankly. So let's let's get into the interview. Let's hear from Amelia. And then I've got some stuff to, uh, to say at the end as well. So here it is, my interview with Amelia Pang. I want to start by just asking about this past year. What has, you know, a year plus now, I guess, of, of COVID been like for you? Oh my gosh. It has been insane in my personal life. Um, I had a baby, oh, wow. but also just insane in the world of Chinese forced labor issues. Yeah, right. Yeah. So much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on the baby. That's uh, that's very exciting. Thank you. Is this Thank your you. first? Yeah. Yeah. 
How are you? Uh, how are you holding up? He just slept through the night for the first time after wow. six months. So <laughs> congratulations! That's, that's uh, yes, thank you. That's a milestone. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's dive into the book because I uh, I really enjoyed reading it, and uh, I guess I, I want to start by just sort of understanding your desire to write about this topic. Yeah. Um, so this particular SOS letter that was discovered in a Kmart product wasn't the first note of its kind, nor was it the last. Um, But rarely do we ever have any type of conversation in the media or on social media about how products made in Chinese labor camps end up selling in our stores. So I really wanted to explore the different problems in the supply chain, the different problems in the way that corporations audit their Chinese suppliers and our complicity as consumers when we buy and support brands that use this type of labor. Yeah. Well, you mentioned this SOS letter. I mean, it was it was found, as you mentioned, in, in some decorations from Kmart. And, you know, the woman who found them, it, she was in Oregon, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, so the book opens with an American mom named Julie Keith. She's just kind of typical suburban mom. She is planning to find decorations for her child's birthday party, um, which happens to be around Halloween. And as she's looking through her storage shed for Halloween decorations, she come across this box of unopened decorations that somebody had given her that, you know, somebody had bought for no other reason other than the fact that it was on sale and is extremely cheap, but no one had a real need for it. So it just sat in storage for two years. And when she finally remembered to open it, she was shocked to find an SOS letter waiting for her. It was written by a political prisoner in China named Sun Yi, who had made and packaged this very product in a place that was essentially a Chinese gulag in Liaoning, China. Yeah. And what was interesting to me, I guess, is this is a it's a huge problem, these Chinese labor camps. And, you know, I want to dive deeper in them as we go. But the reason that Sun Yi was imprisoned was he was a, a practitioner of, of Falun Gong, which is, a, I guess, a meditation practice, a religion. There's a lot of different ways, I guess, to qualify it. But, you know, that in and of itself is is sort of a, a level that could be discussed. But a lot of the story, instead of being about these very big issues and you know, sort of trying to take a, a global perspective on it. It's really the story of Sun Yi and, and this one man and sort of his struggle. I mean, you, you chronicle a lot of his life. And I, I guess I just wonder, that feels like a choice to have, have focused on him as an individual and make the story about him as opposed to, you know, trying to tell a much bigger picture. And obviously, in, in telling his story, you tell the bigger picture. But it was it was an interesting choice just to make it about him. Yeah, I wanted to show the types of people in these camps. Um, they're often religious dissidents, pro-democracy activists, ethnic minorities, people who hadn't committed any kind of real or violent crime that end up in these facilities. And I wanted to show who they were as human beings, really focus on one or two people's personal stories, uh, just, just to so you can have a character that you can relate to as you follow this man's life story, um, his experiences, his early childhood in China, all the way up to the moment he landed in this labor camp and started making products for us. Yeah. 
And you detail all that, and a lot of this comes because he later was was able to escape China and ended up in Indonesia, and you were able to interview him a number of times, um, primarily over Skype, I guess, right? You you didn't actually meet him in person, but you were able to, to talk to him, right? Right, yeah. I interviewed him through Skype and a lot of email exchanges. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to meet him before he passed away. You know, it's a really a sad situation. A lot of um, asylum seekers end up just waiting in limbo for years and years at a time without access to health care or an opportunity to work or education. And a lot of them do end up passing away as they're waiting for the next part of their life to start. Yeah. Well, you know, in talking to him, you were able to draw out very vivid imagery. And that was one of the things that really struck me about the book, too, is it's it's a work of nonfiction, but it almost reads like a novel in terms of just the the picture that you paint of, of his life and what he's going through. And you mentioned in the book towards the end that you were very keen when you were interviewing him on trying to pick out sensory details. You wanted to know the sights, the sounds, the colors, the textures. Why was that so important to you to figure out? Yeah, I, I love to ask those questions anytime I'm writing like a narrative feature, um, even if it's for a story and not, not for a longer book, yeah. just a news article, even though it's often about sometimes painful topics that people don't want to visit. Um, I think it's really important to take people to that scene in that moment. You know, it can be really annoying for the person I interview yeah, <laughs> to right. ask them to keep revisiting that moment over and over again and to try to remember these details that seem kind of frivolous to the person. You're like, I, I want to talk to you about the policy or the torture or this injustice. I don't want to <laughs> spend so much time talking about these small details. But I, I think those small details are really, really important for bringing a story to life especially about such a painful and, and complicated topic. Without it, I think there would just be much fewer people that would get to read it. Yeah. Well, it, it also, like, I can imagine as, as you're having these conversations, like you're saying, it, it can it can feel tedious or it can feel like, is this really the topic that we're here to talk about? I wonder, like, how you approach getting those details from a subject like is it <laughs> i imagine you can't come out of the gate with your first question like what did it smell like in there yeah i usually let them um talk for a while and until they're done kind of saying what they had to say yeah. and then i as i'm doing the interview I, I highlight things that i want to revisit that would make a great potential scene mm -hmm. like i'm already kind of thinking about that at, during the interview mm -hmm. oh that may be a good lead or that may be something that I really want to expand on yeah. uh, through a, like a, almost like a scene. And so I go back and ask for more of those sensory details. I try to wait till later on after they feel like they've already told me all the most important things. So right. it, yeah, otherwise they're like, I'm, they just don't want to talk to me ever again. Yeah. Well, I want to ask too about your reporting style. Like you mentioned in the book that you went over to China for a month and, you know, primarily around Shanghai, but, you know, you're, you're talking about like following trucks out of prisons to other manufacturers. You know, the, oftentimes it's hard to track uh, uh, products that are made with prison labor because they get sort of sent from from a prison facility to a regular manufacturing plant and then get imported overseas or, or exported, I guess, out of China. But you're literally like following these trucks as they're leaving a, a detention center to another manufacturer and just like as I'm reading the book and sort of understanding 
the high level of surveillance that takes place kind of throughout China, but especially around these facilities, like what just that reporting trip were what was going through your head as you're, you know, following trucks uh, on the road and things like that? Yeah, I know it sounds intense, but in reality, you're spending hours on the road looking at a truck on the highway. It wasn't that. <laughs> um, but I mean, you're, like you're camped outside of uh, outside of a detention center, yeah. waiting for them to leave, right? Like, does that ever raise suspicions, or does anyone come over? Or? I, I did have a few close calls, but luckily, I uh, was I didn't end up getting arrested during that trip. I had gone on a tourism visa instead of a, an, instead of a journalism visa uh-huh. uh, for that purpose, because because it's 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 just much much easier to get reporting done and not get stopped um, if they don't know you're coming or they don't know who you are. Yeah. You weren't able to get inside a new, of any of these facilities, right? No. I mean, I know there's been researchers who have. Um, Harry Wu was somebody who had gone in and did a great job exposing that world in the 90s and, and onward. But I, I felt like I didn't know necessarily enough about the industry lingo and I might give it away that yeah. I'm not really who I say I am and then they then I would get in serious trouble so I didn't want to risk it I just wanted to kind of observe on the outside and follow the trucks and of course I, I did have some brief conversations with, with the guards and employees on their way to work uh, to the camp to confirm that the people inside were prisoners and they were you know very willing to do manufacturing contracts with exporters yeah essentially posing as as a Western business person and saying, Hey, you know, I want to try to do business with you guys. Tell me more about your facility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they were very open because they were used to having these types of conversations with business people. Yeah. Well, these, these camps, this, this, uh, Lao guy system, am I saying that right? Yeah. The Lao guy system, which basically it's, they date back to the 1930s. Um, but are modeled on these Soviet gulags. And you say in the book, there's 1400 of these camps now in use across the country. Like I, I, I can't start to wrestle with that scale. It, it just, it's huge to me. And why are we not hearing more about this problem? I guess. Yeah. And that 1400 number doesn't include the Uyghur re-education camps oh, okay. that are expanding at a massive scale. Right. That's completely new and a rapid expansion of, of that Laogai system. Within the last like uh, three years or so, right? Yeah, pretty pretty recent and rapid expansion. Yeah. Mm, as for why there isn't more awareness of it, I think it's been commonly known in the human rights community and the and people who report on China, but but like the general public. Yeah, there hasn't been a. I I just don't think there is a lot of awareness or knowledge about China in general. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that I was wondering as I'm reading this, you know, th- there's this forced labor piece of it, where you know these are prisoners, and often I should use prisoners with air quotes because you mentioned in the book sometimes they are people that are just held for their religious beliefs or, you know, believed to possibly be dissidents or possible terrorists or whatever, but they're never uh, brought before a judge. There's no trial. But even when people do hold a trial, it's a, it's like a 99% conviction rate. Like most of these people in these these prisons are either falsely accused or, or haven't been able to seek justice, I guess. And I guess I just wonder, like, regular factories in China as well. Like when I see a made in China label on something, 
should I be concerned that there are other human rights violations happening, or is this specific to this kind of prison labor, this this Laogai system? Yeah, the, the Laogai system is definitely not the only way for Chinese government to violate human rights. A lot of the really prominent activists uh, for pro-democracy movements um, typically get held in isolation, and they may not necessarily participate in the forced labor system. But no, it does definitely speak to a much larger human rights issue in China. And part of what you cite as as one of the issues, I guess, is just kind of global demand, especially this this rise of things like fast fashion, and you know, people just needing instant gratification. I mean, we were talking about the Halloween decorations and just somebody buying them because they're cheap and saying, oh, this is, you know, whatever, $5. It looks like a good deal. I may as well pick this up. And just that sort of that cycle, I guess, of a high octane consumerism that helps drive the demand for a lot of this, right? Yeah. Um, I was quite surprised to find that a lot of Chinese factories when they make that decision to outsource work to a forced labor facility, it's not necessarily because they're just bad, unethical people. It's a lot more complicated than that. A lot of times they actually can't make that product Mm. in-house for that cheap of a price that our companies gave them. And they can't make the product as fast as the company required them to. And the reasons why our companies are demanding such low prices and such fast turnarounds is that we as consumers support companies who can offer us the latest trends for their cheapest prices. But there's also a thing that you mentioned in the book where like our brains can't process ethical decision making and low prices simultaneously or it's a, it's a very diff, difficult calculus that you know we can be very educated on the issues happening you know in these manufacturing facilities and you know think about them at home read a book like yours or you know watch films about it whatever and then you go into a Walmart or a Target or whatever and you say ooh but i need this right now and it's so cheap like how do we keep that education in our mind i guess as we're as we're consuming and not just looking at price tags. Right. Um, studies have shown that during the moments leading up to a buyer's decision when they're looking at a product, there's often two opposing groups of thoughts or considerations that compete for our attention and our brain kind of only has space for one at a time. And so human rights and ethical conditions or the environment, sustainability, that kind of falls into one group um, and the cheapness of the price, how good it looks, our desire for it is another group. And that unfortunately ends up winning most of the time. But the hope is there's hope. Um, There is another study that found that when you list the reasons why it's unethical to buy this particular product that you really want right before the consumer would make that decision to buy or not, um, they often choose to not buy um, because people inherently do not want to knowingly take part in or support human suffering. Right. I guess the issue is just keeping that information at the forefront of our minds longer than what we typically do. And I think that as we learn more about 
the horrific conditions of these camps, especially uh, with these Uyghur camps that seem to be expanding at a much faster rate and and the conditions seem actually worse than what they were previously. In terms of just the prevalence of the sexual violence, you know, its associations with a genocide, its associations with a, a family separation policy in Xinjiang. These are the things that maybe will cause us to pause for a longer period. Yeah. And and just to to kind of expand on that, I guess, the, the situation with the Uyghurs, these are a, an ethnic minority in, in Western China uh, that have sort of been able to to do their own thing for a while. But in the last several years now, uh, there's uh, there's oil reserves and coal and, and you know resources, I guess, that that the Chinese uh, want access to there, and and they want assimilation, and so they're literally kind of rounding these people up and and putting them in. I mean, you 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 get very close to calling them concentration camps in the book, and I certainly felt the echoes there of the Holocaust. I mean, this feels on that level. I think it certainly is at that level. There's millions of Turkic people, uh, such as Uyghurs and Kazakhs, that are currently detained in these camps. And unlike the maybe political detainees um, like Sunni, who I focus on in the book, who made that decision to participate in political activism and, and for you know noble purposes. These are people who didn't necessarily even do any do that even. They're right. they're just being rounded up for because of the skin color, because of their ethnicity. And it's it's the entire group that's essentially disappeared into into these camps and um, they're forced to undergo forced sterilization procedures, so many of them will not longer will no longer be able to have children after they leave the camps. It's wiping out an entire ethnicity, and our, our products are associated with that. And you've been able to sort of draw connections between some manufacturers and potentially, um, you know, uh, the, these Uyghur camps or, or other forced labor. And I know others have reported on this as well. But like one of the the challenges, I guess, is I don't feel like it's as black and white as I remember, like in the 90s, like, you know, boycott Nike or, you know, Kathy Lee Gifford's clothing line or just different things. They were they were very tangible, like this brand is problematic and it feels like it's every brand now has has some hand in it. And, and it's very difficult to prove a direct correlation as well or, or you know, that that's been something that a lot of companies are relying on on sort of the gray area there to say, well, you can't prove it. So, you know, we're doing the best we can and we support human rights. Right. Um, that goes back to the problematic nature of the way that our companies audit their Chinese suppliers. And there's a chapter in my book that unpacks that. A lot of times these audits are designed to protect a company more so than the actual workers in the factory. You know, when an SOS letter like this comes out or when it's been alleged that a company is associated with Uyghur forced labor, um, the company would typically say, oh, but we had conducted an audit and our investigation shows there's no evidence that um, this factory is using forced labor. But a lot of times what Chinese auditors have themselves told me is that no evidence means that the production records are gone. The company mm. didn't actually require the factories to keep production records indefinitely. So there's a lot of small and large changes that we as consumers can ask our companies to make in the way they audit their Chinese suppliers to create 
real sustainability to to make to actually make sure our companies are not using forced labor. Yeah, and, and I mean, you talk about in that chapter as well this whole industry that's that's sprung up to help you know uh, make uh, counterfeit time cards or falsify other records, and I mean to the point that they're very meticulous about it. So it's it looks like humans, you know, punching a time card or something like that. Right. It's so easy for a factory to give an auditor fake records, uh, to fool the auditor. And why are they doing that? Is it because they're just bad people? Not necessarily. A lot of times it's because they just know they can't pass the audit because they cannot realistically meet the standards, the sustainability standards that our Western companies give them and the extremely low prices that we're willing to pay them. I wonder sort of in all of that, like, where the blame lies and I don't necessarily need to point a finger but I feel like if you know where the blame lies you can start to come up with a solution and you know there's American consumers or I guess worldwide consumers that say we want cheap things but we buy things because they're cheap we're not necessarily you know if something's five dollars or six dollars is that going to be make or break for me maybe not but you know somebody's done that calculation there's the company that is supplying the product who they're outsourcing the production of it to, who that factory may be, you know, outsourcing some of that labor to. And it just, it, it becomes this, this intertwined web where kind of everybody's to blame and no one's to blame. Is that fair? <laughs> Is that, I don't know. That's, that's where my head goes. I I think, yeah, it's fair to say that. Um, but I, I, I would say it's still the companies that hold more of the blame yeah. because, they're not setting up their factories to succeed in meeting the standards that um, they say they care about, that yeah. consumers say they care about. And it's not even necessarily always about the price because you do have pretty expensive brands like Mercedes-Benz even associated with this weaker forced labor evidence. So price is just one aspect of it, but at the end of the day, even even the brands with more money and who are charging higher prices are still, whether knowingly or un- unknowingly, using this type of labor because of the really flawed ways that they're auditing their suppliers. Yeah. But I guess, like, I, I imagine, you know, if you're Mercedes, let's say, and I, I go to a factory in China and say, you know, I need this many engines or this many radios or seatbelts or, you know, whatever it is manufactured, and the factory says, yeah, we can do it. You know, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, it's, it's the same issue I see with consumers that like, of course, I'd rather pay less than more, but I don't ask at what cost, I guess, you know, like, I, I don't know that a supplier is saying, if I get it at this price, what does that mean? And maybe they should be asking those questions, I guess. It sounds like that's what you're saying. Yeah, I think they should be. In order to create real sustainability, companies have to ask, is the price that is being offered realistically able to pay the workers in that local region? These are factors that we have to start considering. Yeah. I I don't know if you've looked at this at all, but I wonder, like, just in thinking about the outsourcing of labor, especially as it comes to, you know, the American consumer market, it's not just China where a lot of our products are coming from. I mean, you know, Bangladesh and Taiwan, but, you know, South America too. And just, we have a global supply chain now. Does avoiding a product made in China, does that make us 
a better consumer or do you know are there labor issues sort of wherever you go and anywhere that that labor is being outsourced that's a great point um i definitely don't think just 100 percent avoiding made in china is going to solve the problem you're absolutely right there are egregious labor issues all over the world um, especially in many of these countries that are kind of just starting their manufacturing boom and um, you're already seeing a lot of companies move out of China and into even cheaper countries um, like a lot of African countries mm. and Myanmar um, where uh, the it's, it's safe to say that in those countries the labor laws are pretty weakly enforced if, if there are any. It's just it's wild. I mean as a consumer what are your recommendations? Like, how do I know, you know, obviously I don't want personally, and I don't think most people listening want anybody in the supply chain to be suffering and, you know, being held against their will and forced to work, you know, 15 to 20 hours a day as you're documenting in the book. How do I know if the thing that I'm buying, you know, on the sale rack at Target is part of that whole supply chain? I think it's time for us as consumers to start asking companies um, and supporting companies that do this, which is to actually consider the human being who may who are, who are making this product. And that's what I try to do in the book, to really show the human beings and the human lives of, of these people. What are the characteristics that make them who they are? What were their dreams and hopes? What were their love stories? You know, what are these great moments of their lives? Because, you know, they're not so different from you and I. They're just still human beings on the other side of the world. And it's really time for us to start considering, can they realistically make these products for us at that price? And if not, what is the price that is necessary to ensure a quality of human life, not only quality of human products? I want to ask you some about your background, too, because, you know, you're an American, but uh, from from Chinese descent. And you talk about in the book having family back in China and things like now having written this book that really exposes what's going on here. Do you feel like you can safely go back and and visit family? Like, do you worry about things like that? I do worry. Um, I'm not sure at this point. Well, we'll see. Is that something that is on the horizon at all? Or like, I, I just, I imagine if I were in your shoes, like being worried that your name would be on some sort of list or so, you know, you land at customs and they, they haul you away or something. I don't know. But just like, do, do you feel like, you know, maybe in a couple of years, I want to go to China. Is that on your mind at all? I probably wouldn't be able to get much reporting done next time. Yeah. Um, but I don't think they usually arrest American citizens, especially if you've never been a Chinese national. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would just be too much of a scandal for them. You know, it could happen, but I, I don't know. They haven't canceled my visa yet. (laughs) We'll see. All right. No, it was just one of those, like, as I'm reading the book and just, I, I guess not fully aware of sort of the surveillance state there and, and just how they treat dissidents and things that like that occurred to me of like, whoa, I wonder if she can go back. I, I want to ask you too. you wrote a piece for the New York Times earlier this year about finding your own Uyghur roots and having a grandmother um, that w- she was half Uyghur, right? Yes. My grandmother was half Uyghur and half Chinese. Uh, she 
was born and raised in Urumqi, Xinjiang, uh, who the, what the Uyghurs like to call uh, East Turkestan instead of Xinjiang, because uh-huh. Xinjiang is the Chinese word for uh, new frontier. And in, in their homeland, you know, my grandmother grew up and she was very aware of the culture and the language. Um, and, and she had that Uyghur identity, but within just one generation, uh, due to a number of reasons, my, my family completely lost that identity and heritage to the point where even those of us who do look Uyghur still just completely identify as Chinese and that um, I think is deeply connected to China's forced assimilation policies. You know, it's something that I never would have even realized um, until I met a Uyghur dissident named Rabia Kadir um, a few years ago. I didn't have enough um, word count in my New York Times op-ed to include this, but she's a pretty prominent Uyghur activist in the U.S. And when I met her for the first time, she said to me, you look so weaker. Mm. It's just, I'm so sad that you've forgotten your roots and you don't know the language or anything about our people, you know, and, um, and, it, and it's problematic that people who are mixed race tend to, or mixed ethnicities uh, tend to only identify as Han Chinese in the end due to um, the difficulties of being a Uyghur in China at the moment um, and, and historically. And as China really encourages these inter-ethnic marriages, it, it just really contributes to an entire culture dying out. Yeah, I mean, that's not just the, this uh, concentration camp issue, but it, as you say, trying to have intermarriage to, to try to sort of dilute the Uyghur race, I guess, uh, within China, encouraging Han Chinese people uh, to move to Xinjiang. Like, there, there's a whole kind of policy out of Beijing that that is trying to systematically diminish the Uyghur people. And it feels like within your family, you have that narrative kind of alive and well. Definitely, definitely. Um, there's nobody in my immediate family that necessarily identifies as Uyghur or even knows very much about the Uyghur culture or language. Yeah. I, I want to ask, too, you know, the other uh, piece of the book um, that we touched on briefly is, is Falun Gong and Sun Yi, the, the subject of the book, was a practitioner of it. You mentioned briefly in the book that your mom was also a practitioner of it. And I wonder just, you know, if, if your relationship to her or to Falun Gong, if that changed anything in sort of how you reported or, you know, how you felt towards Sun Yi or just any of that, if that if that gave you, you know, a connection point, perhaps. Yeah, there was that connection point. Growing up, I had met a lot of asylum seekers like Sun Yi who had life stories that were similar to his in people who had survived the forced labor facilities um, that ended up escaping and going to the U.S. And it's just sad that it's an issue that has been happening for a long time. Yeah. And it's still happening for, for not just Falun Gong, but many, many different types of uh, political dissidents and religious activists. Well, it's it's a phenomenal book. I mean, it, it was eye opening for you. me. And I was amazed, too, I guess, just that it it drove me to action in a way that most books don't. Aww. That You know, I, I, I finished reading it. And I was like, OK, <laughs> like, what can I do? And just, you know trying to research little things, you know, just if I need a new pair of jeans, are there any American manufacturers that I can buy from instead of ones that are imported? You know, little things like that. Uh, I, I hope, I hope oh, other people read it because, yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot in there and it's, uh, it's much more expansive 
than just about manufacturing, which I really appreciated. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. All right, there we go. Amelia Pang. You got to read the book. As I said, it was eye-opening for me. And I hope it leads us to rethink some of our patterns of consumption. I wanted to share one section of the book in particular that I have bookmarked. And, you know, I actually took a picture of it on my phone, too. And it's something that I think we can all think about. This is a list that Amelia has that it was actually inspired by a sustainable shopping post on Man Repeller, which is an independent fashion and lifestyle website. And it's five things that you should think about when you're purchasing that help limit your consumption. And by limiting your consumption, perhaps limit the demand that goes to these Chinese factories and the labor practices that go along with it. So five questions Amelia wants you to ask yourself. Do I already own something that serves the same purpose? Is this item so much better that I would feel compelled to donate three things in its place? If it were more expensive, would I still try to figure out a way to afford it? Or am I feeling an urge to buy this only because it's extremely cheap? If the product I'm considering is an updated version of one that I already own, is my current one working just fine? Am I sure I will wear or use this product a lot? Or will this likely end up sitting in storage after one use? All valid questions, all things to think about. You know, I got excited about the Apple event this week and ooh, a new remote for the Apple TV and different colored iPhones, new iMacs. And, you know, I thought about it and said, okay, do I need this stuff? Do I need a different remote? Or can I do everything I need to with the Apple TV remote I have? I can. And as I said to Amelia at the end there too, I've been thinking a lot about my own consumption, and this started even before I talked to her and read her book. I uh, did a little exchange with Ben Napier, who was on the show many, many months ago. He wanted uh, to try my maple syrup that I've been posting about, and he said, well, can I send you an exchange? So I said, just, you know, send me some swag from your wood shop. (laughs) I would love that. The box came, and it had a beautiful Made in the USA sticker on it, and I said, huh. That's great that they support, you know, local stuff. I didn't even think about that. And he sent me a nice hat that had a Made in the USA uh, label on the inside. And I was thinking about that. I was saying, you know, Aaron and Ben are all about supporting hometowns, right? Small towns and American jobs. And do I give enough thought to that? So I had that kind of percolating in my head, read Amelia's book, and was just like, I need to be doing more to support jobs right here. So I started looking at, you know, when the time comes to get new cowboy boots, for example, Justin Boots has a factory in El Paso, Texas. They also import a lot of their boots, but they have ones that you can buy from the U.S. Wrangler Jeans makes jeans with local cotton from across the U.S. in local factories across the U.S. Not all their jeans, but take a look on their website. They have a whole made in the USA line. A lot of tool companies are making things in the U.S. again. It's not everything, but, you know, everything from little tape measures up to drill driver sets and saws and all sorts of stuff. So I guess the lesson is check the label. And especially with Earth Day today, think about what you're consuming. Think about where it's ending up. Think about the people behind it, right? Because that's it. It's people making all this stuff. Somebody's suffering somewhere for that cheap thing. And is it worth it to you? Once you know, it's hard to say, yes, it is. All right, new episodes of Quarantine Creatives come out every Thursday. 
hit subscribe to get that in your feed. And I have a newsletter every Sunday. Go to heathrasella.com to sign up for that. That's free as well. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. I will talk to you guys next week. Stay safe.